Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets Innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and me, Peter Birch. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. Welcome to the Investor Meets Innovator podcast brought to you by Life Sciences WA. My name is Peter Birch and I'm here with Tracy Wilkinson. Hello again, Tracy. Hi, Pete. Welcome back for episode two. Episode two of season two. And we kicked off this season with a conversation, uh, the episode prior to this with Melissa McBurney, uh, partner and head of impact at Brandon Capital about investing with impact in life sciences. I'm keeping that theme going, a bit of a broad range conversation that I had with the next guest. And I really enjoyed this one because it, Arjun brings such a, a breadth of experience in this industry that not many people get to wear all those hats in their lifetime, right? Agreed. I mean, he was a clinician, worked in startups, and then moved into investment at, at 10 Mile. So a great opportunity to understand the approach that 10 Mile takes as a new venture capitalist on the block, so to speak, based here in WA, and compare and contrast that with the previous episode of how Brandon do it. A lot of similarities, I think, but probably some differences. And there were so many great quotes in this episode, can I just say. So Arjun was, yeah, a fabulous guest, super entertaining. And his perspectives as a clinician and that experience in tech and startup, um, I think, gave some really tangible insights. Absolutely. A lot of good one-liners and, and great insights for anyone wanting to learn about this space. And as you suggest, there's a lot of ways that that uh, investment can be be sought in the life sciences space. And we cover a lot of it in this discussion with Arjun Balaji from 10 Mile. Arjun, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Pete. Excellent. Mate, we're going to be talking a little bit about investing in life sciences, particularly around the lens of impact investing and philanthropy and angel investment. And it's great to be able to get your thoughts on these types of topics. Firstly, though, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. So I'm Arjun Balaji. Yeah, I'm an analyst here at Tenmile, which is a venture capital firm in Perth, Western Australia. My background is I went to medical school here in UWA, worked as a doctor for a while and had a great experience doing that. But I'd always been interested in startups and biotechnology. So while I was studying, I worked at Harry Perkins, which is a research institute here in a place called Basque Lab under Dr. Barry Doyle, and basically was using AI and other methods to predict cardiovascular risk. So like the risk of having a heart attack or an aneurysm exploding or something like that, and had a lot of fun doing that. And that actually spun out into a company here called Navier. So that was a really small company that I worked at, a research group. And then after that, I worked at a company called PYC Therapeutics, and they're a much larger company. But the work was similar in that, again, I was trying to use AI to try and find targets for genetic drugs. So yeah, that was my biotech 
startup journey. And then obviously have had a long interest in maths and physics and AI and how that all relates to medicine and clinical medicine. Uh, so yeah, that's my background. So pretty science heavy, came to investing a little later. But yeah, I would say more science focused, interested in clinical medicine and AI and stuff like that. That's probably going to frame up a lot of the conversation that we have today, but I'd love to dive into that a little bit more about yourself personally for a second, if that's okay. That whole journey going from the clinical side and patients and then looking at putting money into those investments, hopefully, that have a similar impact. What was that whole journey like? To be honest, I feel like we should all try and do it. I feel like the full separation of clinicians and you know what the clinicians use day to day, maybe it could be better because <laughs> a lot of medicine, a lot of medical progress, at least in the last 30, 40 years, has been technology driven. It's been through new medicines and new devices and new diagnostic techniques and new radiology machines and so on. Obviously, the doctors are really good and they're using all that information. They're the ones and the other clinicians that they're involved with use that data, but it's still the technology that's really pushing us in lots of respects. Mm. And so it's a great experience. I mean, for instance, uh, one of the groups that I worked at here is called NISWA, which is the Neurointerventional Service of WA. Really interesting group. They do stroke clot retrievals and stuff like that, all just through your a little artery in your wrist. And when I was seeing that, I was like, all of this is technology. All of this is enabled by these new technologies. So to be a part of that would be very interesting. And a lot of clinicians do invest in these kinds of companies, like we're talking about angel investing. A lot of clinicians and professors and Doctors of all kinds and even other allied health stuff do lots of angel investing. It's become quite a thing because they see the impact that technology has on their day-to-day. Yeah, and the rate of innovation and technology and life sciences, it's super exciting and would make sense that there are clinicians looking to not just do what they do so well in serving patients, but then also investing in some of these innovations as well. These definitions then of, say, impact investing and philanthropy and angel investing, they get bandied around a little bit, but it'd be great to get your take on what each of those are maybe and the kind of differences and how you see that and also then comparing it to the way people might traditionally think of investing in a new business opportunity. I would actually kind of split up impact and philanthropy against angel investing even. So I would say... The kind of two ways to think about investing, or at least the two very high-level ways in this context, are some kind of philanthropy and then some kind of commercial outcome. And I would say impact and philanthropy, there's a lot of crossover as well, obviously trying to do one thing all the time. But if you were to just single them out, impact and philanthropy are kind of setting out with a set of things that you'd like to achieve that are non-commercial, maybe health equity outcomes or bringing clinical care to an underserved population, something like that. And so it's starting with that ideal and then looking for companies that will further that ideal despite their potential commercial outcome. So even if it's a really small, great company that does that thing, you would be interested in investing in them. Whereas on the commercial side, that's the kind of more traditional, what you call the traditional approach to investing, where you're looking for businesses that have the hopes to become much larger and give you a commercial return. And I'd put angel investing in that. Angel investing, obviously, you're going in a bit earlier. Maybe it's just you on your own doing it. And so you might not have all the same tools and resources that a large venture capital firm may have, but you're still usually looking for some kind of commercial return. And I would say 10 mile, we probably sit across them, but we're more angled towards the commercial side. So yeah, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about 10 mile in a second, but the good thing about investing in the life sciences is a lot of your stuff, if you do get a commercial return, means it had some kind of positive impact to the world, to patients, to the clinicians that are serving them. So 
It's a bit cheating in biotech because you get the best of both worlds. <laughs> well, look, you know, and I think about it from my own perspective, if I was in a position to angel invest, invest myself into any venture of any industry, I think about those that have impact and those that are making a difference. I would much prefer to invest in something like that that also has a commercial return as opposed to something that was <laughs> causing detriment to the world. I mean, that's just like, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So yeah. I get that. But at the same time, it's there's a difference between investing in something and like when you're investing in something, you're still expecting a financial return. So you need mm-hmm. those both things in terms of having an impact as well as then having a good financial return. So it sounds like that 10 mile, then maybe that's a good opportunity for you to tell us a little bit more about 10 mile and the way that you operate. Yeah, 10 Miles is a really um, interesting, I would say, unique venture capital firm in Australia. We're rather young, so we're around 10, 11 months old at this point, but we've been very busy (laughs) over that time. So 10 Miles is part of the Forest family office in WA here. And the way the family office is split up is there's a philanthropic arm called Mindaroo, and then there's a kind of commercial entity called Tatarang. And 10 Miles sits under that commercial entity. And our job is early stage life sciences investing venture capital investing. We have a $250 million allocation to try and further the Australian biotech ecosystem, is how we like to put it. And we are pretty agnostic to what we invest in, so long as it's health-related. So we invest in devices, in Mm. new therapeutics, in diagnostic tools, in digital health. We're across the whole gamut of healthcare and medical technology. And we're an evergreen fund. It's going to keep rolling, on and on. (laughs) And I think that's very positive for founders as well. They know that once we do commit to a company, we will follow them for a really long time. And part of the reason for that is we understand how long this stuff can take. Biotech, for all its benefits, does have a longer time horizon than lots of other kinds of investing. And there's lots of ups and downs during that time usually. And so we're very aware of that and have tried to build our fund to support those companies that will take a long time to return. And also that may not take as long to return, but we still have that support for founders throughout the whole process. And yeah, I would say the broader mandate is to enrich and elevate the Australian biotech and medical technology ecosystem. There's so much talent here, so much good research and very intelligent, hungry and good people. And that's part of our reason to exist is to support that and take it to the world. Amazing. And being on the West Coast, being in Western Australia, that would probably open you up to some cool opportunities as well, right? Absolutely. West Coast is the best coast. Everyone knows that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Absolutely. And like I said, I did a lot of work in WA, born and raised here my whole life. There's a huge wealth of excellent research and clinical expertise and, yeah, and obviously talent that these companies try and get as well coming out of our universities and research institutions here. So, yeah, the WA aspect of it, I mean, I'm a huge, how do you call it, bullish on Western Australian biotech ecosystem. It's been really flourishing over the last couple of years, I would say. And yeah, again, that's just another way for us to help out the Australian ecosystem. So good. So take us through that journey then, thinking about what that investment decision might look like when you're working with an organization. So, you know, from beginning to end, what do you consider? And maybe take us through, maybe use some examples of deal breakers or wins and things like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, in terms of the logistics of it, usually we meet with a company in quite an informal introduction, get to know the person on the other side, as much as we try and understand the company and the product they're making and the problem that they're trying to solve. And... Yeah, a lot of it at the start is quite soft. You're trying to gauge how is this person right to solve this problem? Is the problem worth solving? And just, again, with that knowledge of the fact that this can take a really long time and there'll be huge ups and downs, 
trying to gauge, will this person be able to do that? Is the, are they really committed to this problem or is this something that is just like a short-term resume item for them? And so that's what we're trying to look for is someone whose life work will be to solve this really large and unsolved problem. A lot of these problems in biotech and clinical medicine are problems that affect patients on the other side. Patients are often clamoring for this stuff, even if they don't know it. And so are clinicians a lot of the time too. So those are the kinds of initial things that we're looking for. Big unsolved problem, clinical unmet need, person whose life work is to solve that. And then if we get that feeling and then internally we have a team discussion, we're very collaborative at Tenmile. So we're always discussing these companies and founders and clinical problems and so on. And if we all get a good feeling, we progress it. We'll learn more and more. Tenmile has a very hands-on approach, I would say. How, how we learn about companies, how we learn about founders, we take a bit maybe longer than some traditional technology VCs. That's just because of the fact that, again, we respect that the really long time horizon of this stuff, and we don't want to just be an in-and-out VC. We want to partner with founders and stay with them and support them throughout that entire journey. And so, yeah, we're also a little science bias. So we have a lot of scientists on the team and clinicians. We like to do really do deep due diligence on those aspects of the proposition on the investment. And yeah, towards the end of the investment, things are starting to look good. We have a IC like lots of VCs have. And then after that, it's just a matter of signing docs and getting all that stuff sorted out. For those that weren't familiar with an IC, mm. what's an IC? An IC is an investment committee. So most venture capital firms will have some form of investment committee. So mm -hmm. usually it's the team's job to show the investment committee an investment of interest and kind of explain to them why would we like to do this? Why does it fit our story? Why does it fit their story? And that's the kind of tick of approval, I guess you could say. And yeah, I would say that's the kind of general process. It takes around two, four months, something like that. Can go shorter, can go longer, depending on the clinical problem. And the <laughs> as soon as you start digging, lots of stuff comes out. So it depends a bit on that as well. But in terms of deal breakers, I don't want to say there's any strong deal breakers. Obviously, 10 Mile has a mandate. And so things that are outside that mandate become much harder to justify. And that's obviously one thing. In terms of each of those sectors that I talked about, devices, diagnostics, therapeutics, and so on, we look for different things. So again, we're a little unique in that because we do so much, so many different kinds of investing, it's hard to just say, oh, these are the rules that we have. Each area has its own rules. And we can chat about that a bit more if you'd like, but I don't want to say there's any big deal breakers other than being outside of our mandate or something like that. Well, that's important in itself too. If I think from the other side, an organization that's looking to raise capital and would go to a VC or anyone looking mm -hmm. to provide funding without understanding whether it's a mandate or just the types of organizations that they invest in and what they're looking for. It sounds basic, but it can often be overlooked. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that might be um, one of the points that is good for founders listening to this to take away is try and find out what the VC that you're talking to their story, why do they, what are they investing in? They might even have rubrics that they've put out there, either through backward channels that you can find out or on their website. Right up the front of your answer there, you talked about finding this balance between a few things, not just like making sure it's a good problem to solve and that there's the evidence and stuff behind it, but also then that, I think you said it's the founder's life work or it could be the founder's life work. Sometimes you hear from other investors or VCs or firms that might be solely focused just on the problem to solve and, you know, that they go with that organization and not so focus on the founder. Other times, there's really strong connection between VCs and then the founder as well, just put them towards any problem to solve and mm -hmm. they'll hustle and they'll get it done. So it's interesting that up front in this space of, I guess when you think about it, 
whether it's philanthropy and impact investment or whether it's, you know, the angel investing side, you kind of need both to be able to have some trust in that the thing's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's not often so easy to tell whether something is their life's work. They might have only been doing it for the last couple of years. But I guess the thing that we're trying to gauge, which is admittedly difficult, is could this be their life's work? How much yeah. effort have they put into it? How long have they been chewing on this problem? You got that passion. Yeah, and yeah. The, and the how how yeah. passionate are they? What, what, why are they doing this? Is it because they have to see this in the world? They won't stop until it's done? Or is it because right now in 2023, it's the thing to do? Yeah, exactly. So on these investments that you make, what does success look like for you and how do you measure it? Yeah. So like I said, 10 mile, we're a commercial entity. The obvious way to measure success is a giant outcome at the end. We obviously have a lot of, that, that often happens much later down the track. So in the meantime, what does success look like? Success looks like steady progression. It's not, even then, it's not so easy. You're not always progressing, right? <laughs> progression that, is a subjective what, term sometimes. <laughs> progression is a subjective term. Yeah. Are you, are you moving towards your goal in some sense? How many barriers have you broken through? Obviously, every time you take a step, another set of barriers will come up. Are you able to navigate those in a way that makes sense to your original plan? And how are you adapting to that? The other thing is speed. Obviously, in the context of these things taking a really long time, you have to have a sense of urgency for it to get done. If you're very liberal with your time, that's often not a good sign. We want to have a sense of urgency or we want to see a sense of urgency in our teams to solve their problem. If it's a big, important problem, chances are it needs to get done sooner rather than later for the benefit of the people at the other end of it. And those are some of the softer things that we see. Obviously, good communication is a really big part. So a big part of a team's job on the company side is to communicate, not just to customers or patients or clinicians or partnerships, but also to the VCs as well and other investors. So yeah, good communication, high quality organizational skills, progress, unrelenting progress, bashing through barriers. These are the kinds of things that we're looking for. And it's, you know, the barriers don't have to be big, huge barriers, as long as there's that steady, slow and steady progression and that compounding of effort. That's what success looks like to us in the meantime. That communication point is really strong because really important because I guess in the event of no communication, either party just expects the worst and that often happens. And it's about managing those expectations and Absolutely, going yeah. along that journey together, especially in an area like life sciences that will take a lot longer to see that final success of a, say, an exit or a return. My mind keeps coming back to this point though, that, you know, and you're a clinician to Arjun and you know that healthcare is about serving people, serving the patient. And a lot of clinicians might think it's not a space to get a commercial gain because those two things butt up against each other. How do you, in this space of impact investing, where a lot of people might prioritize social and ethical rates of return that might be better than the financial return, then they feel good about that. But with Tamar, you've got to balance both of those things. How do you go through those times when those two points might butt up with each other or when you're making a decision about how to balance the two? Yeah, I would say that's an ongoing tension. And like we said, the split of clinicians and investors and entrepreneurs has probably historically been like that for this reason, or at least that was the justification, I think. But as technology has become more and more pervasive through medicine, and a lot of the medical advances that we've had in the last 40 years are because of the technology underneath. Doctors are still the same human beings, reading the same textbooks a lot of the time even, but it's our tools, it's the technology that we're using that's gotten a lot better. It's the surgical instrument, it's the new scanner, it's the 
drug that is targeted to your cancer and doesn't give you side effects. It's all these things around it. Um, and so I would say we have a kind of do no harm approach. I took that oath at the end of medical school. And I would say that we do something similar here. We, we're not interested in zero sum games. We're only interested in positive sum ones where the patient wins and the benefit that, or at least a part of the benefit that the company is providing to those patients, they get to accrue a little bit of that as well. And we're very pragmatic about it. We often do health economic analysis. We might talk directly to the clinicians that are involved in a lot of these companies and say, what are the outcomes that your patients are seeing? Are they being hospitalized less? Are they dying at a lower rate? Are they getting rid of the disease that they have faster and become, increasing their quality of life quicker? So I would say by nature, the way we've chosen the areas of interest that we have within those pools or pillars that I talked about earlier, we've chosen them for maximal clinical unmet need. And so by nature, those problems have often large groups of patients that are suffering out there in the world and whose the treatment they're getting is suboptimal in some respect. And so by improving that, we're giving them back quality of life and that's worth money to these patients. And so some of that accrues to the company that provides them with that new thing. The obvious example that I could give is like a new cancer drug. If someone is going to have a very poor quality of life and then die in six months, if you can extend that to five years and increase that quality of life, I think a lot of people, you and me, probably would be very willing to pay for that. And in Australia, we have a very good healthcare system to support those kinds of things as well. So yeah, I would say approach in general is to play positive sum games, ones where patient wins, the clinician wins, the company wins, and hopefully we win. And yeah, we actively avoid anything that could bring up some of those tensions that you're trying to talk about. Yeah, I like that. I, I and it's got to be a concerted effort because you're right. If you, It is a dangerous game. If you're purely profit-seeking in this space, you can have negative impact. And we take that on board and we consciously avoid those things. I'm sure if you look in history, there's been examples of that. Yeah. So that's a great knowledge. question. Hey, lastly then, if that's resonating with somebody listening to this discussion to find that balance and be part of those positive SOM games, what would you recommend to someone that's looking to learn more about or participate in these types of investments in the life sciences sector? Yeah, great question. My background is obviously a little biased towards the science, so my answer is going to be biased towards the science as well. I'm sure if you ask some of my colleagues, they'll say something else. But my advice would be to really get stuck in to the industry. So what kinds of technology, and, and not from the point of view of what are other people interested in, what's hot right now, but what do you really think needs to exist? What do you really think needs to be solved? What key problem is out there that you think is being overlooked? And really immersing yourself in what the problem looks like today, what your potential solution is, who are the people and stakeholders that you need to go talk to to get advice on about this? Because Anytime you pick a problem, there'll be a million people that know a hundred times more about it than you do. And along the way, you'll find out about all the different steps that it takes to do this kind of job. And my other thing is to work at startups. In WA, we're just talking about WA. There's a multitude of amazing technology startups here and biotechnology startups and clinical trial startups and so on. The list is endless at this point. And to go work at one of them, cold email the team. And no matter what age you are or what degree or anything you've done, you've always got something to add. And if you've done that initial step of really thinking about the problem deeply, then you'll definitely have a lot to add to them. And a lot of the times you get to see how the sausage is made on the inside, mm. going and investing after that is doable. The other, to kind of give you the other side of that, it would be to go do an in traditional investment background. But like I said, I'm biased towards the science. So I think you can pick up the investment stuff along the way 
life sciences is a funny industry where the underlying understanding of the problem is really important. Oh, look, that's great perspective, Arjun, and it makes a lot of sense given your unique background. But also, I would imagine someone that's listening to this and that might resonate with them, they might have a similar background that's really drawn them to this topic around impact investing or philanthropic angel investments. So, look, Arjun, I really appreciate you making the time to have a chat on the show about this and look forward to speaking again sometime soon. Absolutely, Pete. I'm sure I'll see you very soon. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.